I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. In the earlier service, I did this. I want to do it again in this service. Several people have asked me how I go about preparing my sermons and how I go think through that. And one of the things I like to say is that I consider myself a, a popularist. What do I mean? I mean that there are great men who have written great commentaries, great scholars who have thought through the text, and I go through those commentaries and mine them, as it were, and organize my sermons and then preach the Word. I don't claim to have come up with these ideas myself, and I've mentioned to you on several occasions, particularly in this book, Phil Riken's commentary, and there's a sermon he has that I think is one of the best in this series, To Everything a Season, and uh, it's excellent. It's also written in his commentary, but you can hear it online as well, and uh, I recommend that you look it up. I, I am going to be using a lot from that sermon, particularly at the end, and I'll, I'll make note of that, but don't want to be a plagiarist. I, I talked to Dr. Reichen about it, and he said, don't tell them, just do it. But um, then I'd be concerned if you read his commentary, you'd say, wait a minute, I heard that somewhere. <laughs> We're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Heavenly Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you enable us to uh, know the times, to understand what you have given us here, to glorify you with our lives, and to delight all the more in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as we've made our way through the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon, we know that he's been looking at life under the sun, and he's come to the conclusion that it's vanity. Uh, He's been making the case to convince us that wisdom and wealth and and work, none of these things in and of themselves are going to give us any meaning in life. They're a a chasing after the wind, he says. In fact, such a view of life under the sun actually will only lead you to despair. It'll lead you to grief, to sorrow, to anxiety, to sleepless nights, as we learned a couple weeks ago. And so the purpose of Solomon's quest for the meaning ultimately causes us to look somewhere else if we're going to find satisfaction in life. None of these things will satisfy. He was the best at all of them, and he didn't find satisfaction in any of it. And so it ultimately points us to God. That's kind of been implied throughout our study. 
But two weeks ago, we got our first glimpse of that new reality when Solomon turned his gaze from earth and lifted his eyes up to the heavens. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, he says in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. All this time, Solomon has been searching on earth for what only can be found in heaven. Only God can give the meaning, give us meaning in life. And having established that, Solomon begins to, to build upon his newfound understanding and his focus on God. This is why now we're going to see the words under heaven. In these verses, we are no longer looking at life apart from God under the sun. Our focus is now heavenward. Our viewpoint is now the divine. And so we begin a new unit of the book, which he signaled by a style change of sorts. He's going to move from prose to poetry. Uh, The discussion of God's going to continue. The topic changes from God giving wisdom to now, to, uh, and giving us joy, to now to God setting a time for everything. That's the subject of these verses. And as we begin this new literary unit in the book, we need to be sure to set it in its context to make sure we understand where we're going. And, and for our purposes, the greatest context for this section is actually chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. Where Solomon considered the monotony of life. It's been a while now. I know you probably may not remember. A generation comes and a generation goes. He says, The sun rises, the sun sets. What has been is what will be. There is nothing new. And, and, and nothing will be remembered, if you remember that. Like the endless cycles of nature, all its activity, which still gains nothing, so it is with us. So it is with man. The journey goes on, but we never actually arrive. That was his conclusion and his first argument for why life is meaningless. Well, now here in chapter 3 and extending actually to chapter 5, he will re-examine that argument. And he will look at four different factors. He's going to look at time, and that's our verses this morning. He's going to look at eternity. He's going to look at death, and he's going to look at suffering. Now, one writer, Warren Wearsby, he points out, he asks us to look up time, to look within eternity, to look ahead at death, and to look around at suffering. And those four factors, time, eternity, death, and suffering, God uses to keep our lives from becoming monotonous, from becoming meaningless. It's it's those things. And this morning, we're going to look at the first one. We're going to look at time. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, when you read this poem, besides thinking of maybe, maybe the 1960s song by the birds, turn, 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 besides that, most people usually take this passage and understand it to be teaching us about acting and doing things in the right time. It's a list of actions that we do. And so, for example, we think, remember, there's a right time to weep and a right time to laugh. There's, there's a right time to speak and a, and a right time to be silent. And, and it's kind of our job to figure out the time. And there's truth to that. 
And I'll point that out at the end of the sermon, that there's truth to that. But that is not the main lesson that, that Solomon's trying to get across here at this point in his letter. The text does not tell people how to order their activities or when to perform these events. It describes these events as part of existence. And, and the point is that nothing happens haphazardly. Now, you may have concluded life under the sun, that's what happens. It just happens, life's terrible. But no, it doesn't happen haphazardly. The, the verbs here are divine actions, actually, before there are activities, human activities. They, Solomon is making it clear that God alone is the one who determines. One writer says, God is the primary actor on the temporal scene. See, Solomon's making the case for the sovereignty of God over time and over eternity. Remember chapter 2, we just looked at it, ended with the profound shift from viewing life from under the sun to viewing life with a heavenly view. And here in chapter 3, God is mentioned now 10 times. And in verse 11, he explicitly states, God has made everything beautiful in its time and that, every, and that everything he does from beginning to end endures forever. That's verse 11 and verse 14. And why? Why has he done this? And we're told in verse 14, so that people will fear before him. That is, so that they may stand in awe before him. And so here's the main theme of this poem. The sovereign God set the times forever so that people will stand in awe before him. God is sovereign over time, and he is sovereign over whatever happens in time. He, he controls the times. And so Solomon wants to convince us to stand in awe before our sovereign God. Or to put it in light of the point I made earlier about the context here of chapter 1, Solomon wants us to look up and see that life and every event is not monotonous. It's not meaningless, but rather there is a sovereign God who is accomplishing his divine purposes through these events. Every event that goes on in our life, even though we may not always understand what he's doing, everything will be beautiful in its time, Solomon says, even the most difficult circumstances in life. And to make his point, Solomon begins with a summary statement. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, Ecclesiastes 3.1. Now, that's a, a sweeping statement. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. Our confession says God's holy, wise, and powerful providence governs all his creatures and all their actions. That's the meaning of verse 1. God is sovereign. This attribute of the sovereignty of God... One writer, I, I, I believe this was Spurgeon, I don't have it here, but he says, God's sovereignty is his absolute authority and rule over all things. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is God. That because he is God, he does as he pleases, and always as he pleases. That God is sovereign means that he is Lord. It means that he is ruler. He means that he is master. It means that he is king. The one who confesses the sovereignty of God confesses that God is almighty, that he is wise, that he's omnipotent, and that he's the one who exercises all power in heaven and on earth. To confess the sovereignty of God is to confess that nothing is outside of God's control, but that all things take place according to his will and 
appointment. And see, it's that word, appointment, that we read here in our text when we read the word season. Season means a set time, an appointed time, or an appropriate time. You could translate verse 1, for everything in appointed time, a time for every matter under heaven. And so God is the one who appoints everything in its appropriate time. Every matter under heaven. As I said, verse 1 is, an all, is all-encompassing. And so the scope of God's sovereignty is all-encompassing. And that's what is emphasized in this poem. In 14 statements, or pairs, as we'll see, Solomon infer, affirms that God is providentially at work in our lives. He's accomplishing his sovereign purposes. And all the pairs here, each of them, born, die, plant, pluck, kill, heal, break down and build up. I could go on, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, uh, embrace, refrain, to seek, uh, so on and so forth, to keep, to cast away, to tear, to sow. All these contrasts, all these pairs are what is called, and this is where I needed help from the commentators, it's called a mirrorism. I wouldn't have known that. Amirism is a figure of speech in which the combination of two contrasting words make up a whole. For example, the heavens and the earth means that God created the whole universe. That's the idea. Well, in the same way, each of the pairs in Ecclesiastes makes up a larger whole. Together, uh, birth and death comprise what? The whole human existence. Weeping and laughing, it includes all levels of emotion, all the range of human emotion, and so on and so forth. And so there's something comprehensive about each of the pairs, and there's also something comprehensive about all the pairs together and listed as a whole. They cover the whole sweep of human experience, birth to death, war to peace, and everything in between. They, they cover the, the largest possible range, and so they cover every aspect of our life. And so the poem as a whole, in each part individually, makes perfectly clear that God is the king of and over time. He controls it. And here is what Phil Riken said. He regulates our minutes and our seconds. He rules all our moments and all our days. Nothing happens in life without his superintendence. Everything happens when it happens because God is sovereign over time as well as eternity. And think about it. God is the one who brings life into this world. Uh, in Psalm 139, 13, David proclaims, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my brother's womb. He's also appointed the time of death. Man's days are determined, says Job. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. And so God appoints a time to be born and a time for death. You cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, says Martin Luther. And, and, and you cannot die any sooner either. God's also active in in planting and plucking up. In the Old Testament, this had to do with God describing his relationship to his people. Isaiah 5 states, God planted his people as a fruitful vineyard, but then they turned against him. And we read this in Isaiah 5, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. I will pluck it up, and it shall be devoured. And so God plants, and he plucks up. Well, there's also a time for God to kill and a time for him to heal. 
a time for him to break down and a time for him to build up. Genesis 6, Romans 13, make it clear that there's a time when God calls for capital punishment. But there's also a time when God brings healing to the nation. Here's a familiar verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14. And God broke down the Tower of Babel, and he built up a house and a kingdom for David. And so there's a time for God to kill and to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. How about verse 8? Look at verse 8. There's a time for God to love and a time for him to hate. And do we believe that? Maybe that's just poetic. It's not so obvious. Well, the truth is, uh, many bumper stickers probably don't say, God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. <laughs> uh, 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 but the truth is, hatred is one of God's perfections. Or you might want to put it this way, a manifestation of one of his perfection. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 6, in fact, I may stop my series on Ecclesiastes to preach about this at some point, that there are seven things God hates. He hates a haughty haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. They're not the ones we usually think of. And when we think God's judgment's coming down on someone. And so there's a time for God to love is the point. And there's a time for God to hate. I could go on. And you get the point. All these truths give us a a full picture of of God's sovereignty. He is a life-giving, life-taking, planting and uprooting, killing and healing, loving and hating, peacemaking warrior. And we need to embrace the whole picture of who he is. And see, both halves of the pairs found in these verses tell us the truth about his character. Ultimately, it demonstrates that he is sovereign over everyone in every event. He's providentially guiding and directing every incident and every activity that comes into our lives. Every single one. That is the God in whom we serve. And see, all these pairs, uh, all these pairs straightforward are straightforward enough. We, we understand them. We get it. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to die, and, and so on and so forth. We understand them. Maybe there's a difficulty with verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. This is another example. You need to look in your study Bibles. Why would he say this? What does he mean? Well, there have been several suggestions. Uh, one is that the castaway stones refers to a common practice in the Old Testament uh, to make the fields of a conquered nation unproductive. So they would cast the stones and it would make them unproductive. And then uh, to gather stones is a reference to Isaiah 5 where the stones are cleared away and used for the building of a watchtower. And so, besides that one there, regardless, the, the, the intent of the poem, the understanding, is pretty straightforward. We, we get it. They all come together. They give us a picture of God and remind us that he's sovereign over time. But so what? I mean, really, God is sovereign. Did anybody come in here and say to themselves, I, you know, I'm not quite sure? Maybe, but most of us did. 
is that why this passage is here? Does any of what is found in this passage actually directly apply to us? I mean, it's calling me to know the right time for every activity. Is that the point? Is that the application? Surely we have no control over our birth, and so, or our death, but should I read this and assume I am to think uh, there's a time, I need to remember when there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, or the right time to mourn and the right time to dance. Now, there's never a right time to dance, kids. It's wrong. Just kidding. <laughs> or what about the right time to embrace and refrain from embracing in my relationships? Is that to be applied? We need to learn what the right time is to be silent and the right time to speak. That surely needs to be implied. So how do we apply this? Well, there is truth to all those things. The passage does clearly state that there's a right time for these activities. There is a right time. But the first lesson for us to learn is not so much when is the right time to, to laugh or cry or be silent or speak. The main practical lesson, besides showing us the sovereignty of God over over time, is that while we're here on this earth, while we sojourn on this earth, with all the complications we face, with all the trials we endure, this poem tells us that it's important for us to make the best use of our time under, not the sun, under God's sovereign hand. And see, of course, this includes doing these activities at the appropriate time. And see, here's another main point. This is exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Christ did. When God the Son was born into this world, he walked and he walked on this earth. He knew the right time for every activity. Now, it's at this point, and this is why I suggested Dr. Riken's commentary. It's this section that I just loved. He says, when we witness the work of Jesus in the Gospels, we see a Savior who always knows what time it was. There was a time for him to be born. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. There was a day appointed for Jesus to die. He died on that day, and not a day before or a day later. The religious leaders were plotting against him, trying to put him to death, but they couldn't until the appointed Time, as Roman says, but when the hour did come, Jesus died on the cross. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He rose again at the right time on the third day, as the scriptures had promised. And so, from his birth to his death and on to his resurrection, Jesus did everything timely in his saving work. He knew when to plant. He is the vine and we are the branches, says John 15. And he uses his disciples to replant the vineyard of the people of God. He knew when to pluck up. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted, Matthew 15. He knew when it was time to kill. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea, Matthew 18. And he knew when it was time to heal. He made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. See, Jesus knew when it was time to break down. Think of when he drove the money changers out of the temple in Luke 19. And he knew when it was time to build up, such as the time he built his church on the rock of Peter's confession that he was and is the Christ, Matthew 16. He knew when it was time to weep and mourn, as he did at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept and or over the lost sheep of Jerusalem. And he knew when it was time to laugh and dance. Thus he rejoiced when the disciples went on that first missions trip. 
And, and they came back from that trip, and, and they had started to see the, the work of the kingdom of God in Luke 10. He laughed. He rejoiced. So I could go on. He knew when it was time to embrace as he did with the tax collectors and sinners, and when to refrain from embracing, as he did with the Pharisees. He knew when it was time to seek lost sheep and when it was time to let the goats who refused to hear his voice go. He knew when it was time to speak, as he did daily, preaching the kingdom of God. And he knew when it was time to remain silent, as he did at his trial on the cross. He gave no answer, not to a single Charge Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53. He knew when it was time to love, showing mercy to lost and needy sinners who came and repenting of their sin. And when it was time to hate, standing against evil and standing against injustice. And finally, he knows when it's time for war as his church does battle with the forces of evil. And he knows when it'll be a time for peace when he returns and the Son of God will make war cease at the ends of the earth. Beloved, that's your Savior. That's your God. That is your Redeemer. That is your friend. He truly redeemed time. He knew what time it was. And see, his example, his example, living as he did in human flesh by the power of the Spirit, causes us us, to do the same. In the power of the Holy Spirit, In Christ's power and guided by him, we are to make the best use of our time. Now, of course, Christ did this on our behalf, first and foremost. He kept the time correctly because we always mess up the use of time. We're prone to waste it. But that being said, we're we're called to be the best users of time we can be under his direction. If he calls, if you call yourself, if I call myself a follower of Christ then we need to know what it is every moment, as an, see every moment as an opportunity to serve our God. Now, I got this illustration. I, again, I'm not sure if this was in the commentary or if I came across it somewhere else. It said this. I think you'll un, uh, relate. If you had a bank, we all have banks, that credited your account each morning with $86,000 that carried over no balance from day to day, allowed you to keep no cash in your account, and every evening cancel whatever part of the amount you failed to use during the day, what would you do? You know what you would do. You would draw out every cent and find something to spend on it, and you'd use it to your advantage. Well, then the writer says, you have such a bank. It's called God-appointed time. Every morning it credits you with 86,400 seconds. It carries over no balances. It allows no overdrafts. Each day it opens a new account with you. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. So how will you use it? It's interesting. What will you do with the time that you've been given? See, beloved, time happens to be some of the, one of the most difficult things for us to manage. We all have the same amount of time in a day. The question is how we spend it or whether we waste it. That's the question. And so the Bible encourages us and instructs us to use our time wisely, redeeming the time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. 
And the best way we can use our time, and see, this is the context of the book that we need to understand. It's not by accumulating wealth. Solomon tried it. It's not by seeking worldly pleasure. Solomon tried it. It's not by being a workaholic. Solomon found that that wouldn't work as well. The best use of your time is in the service of God and in the service of others by the power of the Holy Spirit. As God directs you by his spirit, using your time for the Lord. And that's what we're called to do. That's what this passage points out. But I want to close by addressing not the believers that are here, but those who may have not yet looked up to the heavens and found Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, I don't know, or maybe you're watching. Let me remind you of verse 2. There is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to be born and a time to die. Scripture says it's appointed for man to die once and after that, judgment. You will die. When? I don't know. Maybe sooner, maybe later. Will you be ready when the time comes? That's the the question. Are you ready for eternity? Are you ready to face the almighty sovereign God? And see, if you want to meet this almighty God and know his peace rather than his wrath, if you want to know his love rather than his hatred, if you want to know his embrace rather from his rejection, if you want to understand his gathering rather than his casting away, if you want to, if you want to delight the Lord and understand his rejoicing rather than weeping and mourning, God's planting rather than plucking, his healing rather than the death penalty, then what you need to know now is Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What you need to do is embrace him now, now. Now's the time for salvation. That's what scripture says. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. And so you don't know how much time you have left, but you have this moment. And you can embrace Jesus Christ. You can look to him. You can trust him for his life, his death, and his resurrection. That They paid your sin. And you can know now, in time, the love and the embrace of your heavenly, sovereign Father. Let's pray. Our great God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign over time. Forgive us for misusing the time. And Father, I pray that by the work of your Spirit in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, that you would enable us to desire to use the time you have given us for your glory, for the edification of the saints, for reaching the lost. In Christ's name, amen.